0: All right, so that brings us to self-defense. All right, I'm just going to go over this quickly. I want you to know what the basics are, the essentials, okay? Because self-defense really applies to the aggravated assault with the shotgun. Recently, we all watched as two high-profile trials played out in Georgia and Wisconsin. Trials with different outcomes, but similar playbooks used by the defense. We the jury find the defendant, Kyle H. Rittenhouse, not guilty.
1: We the jury find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. We, the jury, find the defendant, Greg McMichael, guilty.
0: The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse and the trial of the three men who killed Ahmaud Arbery were at the center of conversations about racial justice. Both involved white men arming themselves, killing people, and arguing that they did so because they were acting in self-defense. Travis McMichael said that the man jogging in his neighborhood was gonna try to take his gun from him and kill him.
1: This is a life or death situation. And I'm going to have
0: to to stop him from doing this. So I shot. And Kyle Rittenhouse said that he was cornered and that one of the people he killed was also trying to take his gun.
2: If I would have let Mr. Roosevelt get my gun, he would have killed me.
0: But what does self-defense actually mean? In a country with gun rights and stand-your-ground laws, where race and bias are so intertwined with our perception of danger, when is someone legally allowed to kill another person? From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 9th. Today, we take a closer look at the self defense argument. And later in this episode, a story that shows the stakes of disappearing local news. The conversation around the self-defense argument feels more relevant than ever. There are these concerns around white vigilantism. The Supreme Court is also currently looking at a case that could alter gun rights in many states. So those things could intersect with how this self-defense argument is used in court. Because even right now, the actual definition of self-defense is way more complicated than a lot of people realize.
1: The law varies from state to state.
0: That's Paul Butler. He is a law professor at Georgetown and a former federal prosecutor.
1: You're entitled to use deadly force if you face a threat that is also deadly and imminent and unlawful. There are conditions that have to be satisfied. One important one in many jurisdictions is that if you are the initial aggressor, if you started the fight, then you can't claim self-defense. If there's a place of complete safety that you can run to, which would mean you don't need to kill, then you're required to do that. That's called the duty to retreat.
0: And we heard about retreating in the Rittenhouse trial.
1: Were you able to go in a northerly direction? I I wasn't. Describe what happened. I... Once I
2: take that step back, I look over my shoulder and Mr. Rosenbaum, Mr. Rosenbaum was now running from my right side. Um, And I was cornered from in front of me with Mr. Zeminski.
1: The defense persuaded the jury that Mr. Rittenhouse was the victim, not the aggressor
0: seems like there's a lot of latitude for interpretation here. Because when you talk about the idea of an imminent threat of harm, I think that there are a lot of different people who could look at a lot of different situations and have different opinions about whether something is or isn't a threat, how imminent it is, whether someone is or is not an initial aggressor. And in many ways, it feels like those terms already open up some conflicts in terms of the interpretation.
1: Oh my God, it sounds like you just were in my law school class where we were talking about this issue. (laughs) We read a case in which a woman who had been horribly abused by her husband for years killed him while he was sleeping. And she claimed self-defense. Well, how could anyone believe that there was an imminent threat from Hmm. someone who was sleeping? She presented expert testimony. And sometimes some of the experts say that people who have been subject to repeated abuse can predict the next time that they will be attacked. And so the issue in the case was whether a jury could ever be instructed on self-defense when the person who was killed was sleeping. In that case, the court said no, that it would be unreasonable for anybody to think that A sleeping person posed an imminent threat. My students voted on whether they agreed with that result. And resoundingly, overwhelmingly, they did not. But it makes your point that the law of self-defense is certainly open to interpretation.
0: That's interesting. I'm so glad that you're bringing gender into this as well, because I do feel like women have a very different experience of what a threat looks like and how Frequently, they experience imminent threats of harm in day to day life, which I think hasn't been as much of a, a part of the conversation around self defense.
1: Um, but so, actually, in law school, we think all the time about whether there should be different rules for self defense for women than for men. Mm-hmm. And there's a debate about whether that's stereotyping women. The idea is that they're not. As good fighters. Sometimes people call the rules about self-defense boys rules. But then other Mm. people say, no, it's, it's realistic and that maybe there ought to be more room for women to use force to defend themselves than men.
0: It's interesting thinking about that idea of what is a threat at a time when so many people have guns, because it's like this intersection between what the definition is of self defense, but also what happens when gun rights are brought into that. So, for me, at least personally, like if someone were to show up to my place of work or a grocery store where I was at carrying an assault weapon, That, to me, is a very imminent threat of harm and an action of aggression.
1: Yeah. So there actually is some social science that suggests just the sight of a gun is provocative. That Mm -hmm. it raises your blood pressure. It puts your mind in a defense mode. But law hasn't caught up with that social science yet. And I think the concern that many people have after the Rittenhouse verdict is that it's an invitation for people who want to patrol social justice protests or Black Lives Matters protests.
0: Hmm. That does seem like a concern. And what are the factors that can sometimes influence whether or not a jury buys an argument of self-defense. I mean, obviously, there are different circumstances in different cases. And I think a lot of times it comes down to the actual language of the particular self-defense laws in different states. But also, I wonder, like, more globally, I mean, when, when a jury is looking at a self-defense situation, like, what is and is not sympathetic?
1: Race matters. The law of self-defense is what lawyers call objective. So it's not enough for the person who kills in self-defense to believe that his or her life was in danger. A reasonable person would also have to believe that their life was in danger in order for the defense to apply. And baked into that objective analysis is rooms for stereotypes about Black people and especially Black men being threatening. A lot of people would say there's a lower standard for when a white person Can claim self defense against a black so called assailant than for when a black person could claim self defense against a so called white assailant. And there's actually some empirical evidence that supports that concern. White people who claim self defense against blacks are more likely to walk, to be found not guilty, than African Americans. Who claim self-defense against whites?
0: That's both interesting and also, I think, very unsurprising, that very much squares with my sense of the criminal justice system. But in our idea and in the legal language of self-defense, if there is this latitude for interpretation that often um, involves disparities in who we see as a threat or who we see as an initial aggressor, then how do you rectify that? How do you create a legal system where there is still a concept of self-defense, but one that isn't so racist?
1: So I grew up in a community where African-American elders would often say, when you know better, you do better. When you know better, you do better means in the context of law, like self-defense. Letting jurors know that sometimes stereotypes about race can creep in to the jury room, and they need to be conscious of that and make sure that their deliberations are only based on the evidence that's presented in court and not influenced by racial bias or stereotypes. Beyond that, there are obvious big issues about public policy and guns. We're going in a direction where the Supreme Court seems to be authorizing more people to bring guns into public places. We also have the rise or more attention paid to vigilantes, especially white vigilantes. And a lot of folks think of Mr. Rittenhouse in the same camp. And so if we have widespread presence of guns and a group of people who want to take the law into their own hands. I don't know if I'd say that's a recipe for disaster, but It's a very concerning situation.
0: Yeah, it it does seem like the makings of a legal conflict, right? That if the courts were to make it easier to bring guns into public places, but that bringing a gun to a public place can be seen as a form of threat, and that there are these other laws that defend your ability to act when threatened, who says, like, which law trumps the other?
1: Well, some people would say the problem is there's actually not a legal conflict. Most legal scholars were not surprised at the verdict in the Rittenhouse case. And given the law and the way that the judge instructed the jury, a reasonable juror could have come to the conclusion that Mr. Rittenhouse was justified, or at least the prosecution didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was not justified in using that deadly force. And so when we think about ideas like structural discrimination or implicit bias, the concept is that there's something about prejudice or stereotypes that's baked in to law. And a lot of people would say that anti-Black bias is just a part of our criminal legal system.
0: Are there states that are considering modifying their language around the definition of self-defense in light of some of these arguments that have been brought up more recently that— It can be used in uh, ways that are often racist.
1: When states modify their self-defense laws, it's often to provide more protections to people who kill or use force to defend themselves. I think if we examine reform of self-defense laws, In many states, they're going more in the direction of empowering people to fight like men, to fight like white male property owners, than reform is focused on ways to make the law promote equal justice. So the issue is the burden of proof. And a shift from the burden of proof in self-defense cases going from the defendant to the prosecutor. And what these developments do is to, if not enshrine the bias or stereotyping about race and gender that's embedded in law now, they certainly promote or duplicate That stereotyping.
0: So I wonder, based on that, do you predict that there will be an increase in cases in the future in which defense attorneys are kind of testing the limits of what self-defense means and trying to employ this defense in like new and more expansive ways?
1: This is a time to remember that Somewhere around 95% of people who are prosecuted for crimes plead guilty. Trials are extremely rare. And if you go to a criminal court in any big city, you'll see that most of the people or many of the people who are prosecuted are black and brown. And the reality is that when those folks claim self-defense, The prosecution usually wins. The jurors don't usually buy those arguments. So it's really hard to make predictions about how practices like the decision to go to trial versus plea change in response to a couple of high-profile cases. But I think the best guess is that criminal court will proceed accordingly. There'll be few trials, a whole lot of plea bargains. And African-Americans and Latinx people will not receive the same kind of benefits, including the same presumptions of innocence that white people do.
0: Paul Butler is a law professor at Georgetown University. This story was produced by Sabi Robinson and edited by Maggie Penman. After the break, we're going to take a look at the story of a sinking school in a place that is not often covered because of disappearing local news outlets. We'll be right back.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn.
0: From 2008 to 2020, the number of newspaper journalists in the U.S. fell by half. The Post has been looking at some of the communities that are undercovered because of that, and some of the stories that we're at risk of losing as local news disappears. Today, we're bringing you to a village in western Alaska called Napakiak. Because of climate change, this village is slowly sinking into the river that was once its lifeline.
2: So we traveled to Nepakiak by boat, and once Nipakiak came into view, I started thinking, are buildings supposed to be that close to the water?
0: Greg Kim is a reporter for the public radio station KYUK in Bethel, Alaska. He traveled to Nipakiak on the first day of school this year, because the first building that's going to be swallowed up by the river is William Miller Memorial School he spoke to producer Emma Talkov about it.
2: The school's right on the river's edge with only about 60 feet of land between the school and the water. And this is where students used to play. But waves have battered the land over time, causing it to crumble away. The riverbank looks broken. There's exposed roots of willow trees and slabs of mud hanging off of it. And it's clear Napakiak is eroding.
3: This is what's gonna go in the front part of your binder. The
2: high schoolers' classroom was closest to the river. And for their safety, the staff relocated the students into a portable classroom next to the main school a little further back from the water.
0: I wanted to welcome you back to school and answer any questions that you may have, give you a little bit of update on what's going on.
2: This is Principal Sally Benedict talking to the high schoolers on the first day of school.
0: We're doing this because of the erosion. What we were told this summer that um, until we're in the river, we're not a top priority. The river's there, our school's going into it, and we need a new school. We just don't have the money to build a new school. It's really expensive.
2: The school is a unique building in a village like Napakiak. First of all, it's a through K-12 school, the only school in the community with about 100 students. Mm-hmm. It's by far the biggest building in the community. It's the only place that everyone in the village can fit into. So besides being a school, it's also an evacuation center in case of spring floods. They host dog sled race award ceremonies there. They also hold funerals and feasts there. So it's the center of the community in a lot of ways.
3: Greg, can you just describe Napakiuk for me? Like... Where is it? What kind of place is it? Who lives there?
2: Nipakiak is a small, remote Alaska native village in western Alaska with uh, three to 400 people. Uh, there are no roads to Napakiak, so you can't drive there. You have to either fly on a tiny plane or boat there. Mm. It's on a small island tucked into a bend of the Kuskokwim River, which is the longest free-flowing river in the United States. The Yupik people have been here for thousands of years. They're still living on their ancestral lands, practicing their ancestral traditions, which is pretty unique. In the early summer, everyone's fishing for salmon, drying them and storing them for the winter. In late summer, people pick berries. In the fall, people hunt moose. The knowledge of how to survive and thrive on these lands has been passed down for generations. I asked one elder, Jacob Black, what he thought about moving to like a completely different location, like an urban area, since the erosion is threatening Napakiak's existence. And he couldn't even fathom it. He said it took him a lifetime to learn these lessons, what the land provides here, and how could he leave it?
3: So how did we get to this point? Like why is erosion about to swallow up the school? Why have we gotten to the point where it's just Feet from the riverbank.
2: Yeah, so climate change is not the only reason there's erosion. Rivers just naturally erode because the current of the water carries away the land over time. Mm. But climate change has dramatically accelerated the pace of erosion. And where in Alaska, the temperatures are warming two to three times faster than the rest of the world. Uh, according to studies the community has done, the riverbank in Napakiak is eroding around three times faster than it was 10 years ago. And that's because of a number of climate change factors. But the easiest one to understand probably is that the river is frozen for a shorter period of time each year. Mm. And that means the current is eating away at the land for more months of the year.
3: How do the folks that you talk to think about the way that climate change is impacting them. It seems like it's striking really close to home. How are they reckoning with that?
2: I think more people are seeing climate change affect every facet of their lives. One example is fishermen used to worry about catching too many salmon, and now they aren't catching enough to last their families throughout the winter. And then you have homes and school buildings that are at risk of falling into the river. These are existential problems. Mm-hmm. And people know climate change is a cause, and people know the issues are mostly originating from elsewhere. One interesting thing that we heard from elders, and, and Yupik is an oral tradition, the elders said they had heard from their elders that they knew climate change was coming.
3: <laughs>
2: the senior elder in Nipakiak, Annie Nelson, said, quote, when the people begin to change in attitude and love starts to get cold, they predicted the weather will begin to change and erosion will start happening and people will start moving.
3: So what is like preventing a new school from being built?
2: Yeah, so funding for a new school, a new replacement school, has to come from the state. So I asked the facilities manager for the State Department of Education, his name's Tim Mirig. Mm-hmm. why hasn't the state built a new school? And here's what his response
3: was. River's X feet away. It's eroding. You know, can't people see that this is a need? And why doesn't the state step in and do something? It's not beyond anybody's ability to accomplish, but the resources aren't there.
2: And so Tim Meyrig has said that he's visited Nipakiak. He's seen the issue and the need. But there hasn't been any state funding for building a new school in Napakiak. Alaska's finances run on oil, and revenue from oil has been declining. And Alaska's finances are in something of a crisis. Last year, the legislature approved $0 to build any new school buildings in the entire
3: state. Literally $0. Wow. What is the community doing in the meantime while the school just kind of teeters on the edge of this river?
2: Yeah, I think people are wondering what's going to happen once students no longer have a school, which is almost definitely going to happen in the next year or two. But this is already affecting students now. There was one student we talked to, a 14-year-old Madison Andrew, who transferred schools to Bethel this year. That's where I live. Her mom, Jackie Andrew, said her daughter didn't want to risk not having a school building this year.
0: Madison's leaving, and she's um, pretty much my right arm, my right leg, my left arm, my left leg, um, she does everything um to helping in the house to being being there for me, so she's like a big piece of my heart is being ripped
2: and another student seven year old Evelyn Nelson, she wears leg braces because she has osteoporosis, and I talked to her mom Amanda Black, and she said that her daughter would not be able to evacuate the school quickly enough if a storm hit the school suddenly so she made the difficult decision to keep her daughter in remote learning.
3: I know my daughter, she loves to attend the school and she loves to be with her friends and being with the teacher. And I know she wouldn't like staying at home and just working through an iPad. On the other hand, I want her to be safe and not to be in the school where the land is eroding. So what comes next for the people in this village and I guess other villages that are in similar situations as climate change only accelerates? Like, what is the long term plan as this river continues to kind of eat into the town?
2: Yeah, well, we've been focusing mostly about the school in Napakiak because it's the closest Mm -hmm. building to the water right now. But as you mentioned, the river's erosion isn't going to stop. Uh, Napakiak is only projected to erode faster over time and so other parts of their community are going to be threatened. Their store, their airplane runway, their source of drinking water are all within a few hundred feet of the river. So Napakiak has a 50-year plan for moving their whole community back from the river. But that kind of project, at least for Napakiak, is projected to cost over $100 million for a community of a few hundred people. And the federal bipartisan infrastructure bill allocates $216 million for tribes to adapt or relocate from environmental threats, but that's for the entire nation, and Nipakiak would need at least half of that by itself. So it's a huge problem, and I don't think Napakiak or these communities know how they're going to find enough money to f- save their community, but they're taking it one step at a time, and for Nipakiak... Their school is the biggest priority right now.
0: Greg Kim is a reporter for KYUK in Alaska. Emma Telkov produced this story and Alexis Diao edited. To read more of these stories from local news deserts, check out our show notes or go to postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter.